talking to a 104-year-old woman, and they said to her, so what's the best thing about being 104? And she just said, well, there's no peer pressure. <laughs> All right. One of the most effective weapons that Satan uses to destroy churches and families and the lives of believers is disunity. Uh, of course, the world takes notice of that and mocks the testimony of those who claim to follow Jesus, uh, Jesus as they shoot their own. At the close of chapter 1, which we didn't get to the last verses last week, Paul pleads with the Philippians to be diligent to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So here in chapter 2 now, Paul makes it clear that being self-absorbed, focusing on your personal rights, are the very attitudes that destroy harmony and unity. Spiritual unity is a matter of the heart, and disunity is a spiritual problem that can only be solved when people get right with the Lord in their attitude and with others. The biggest hindrance to unity is selfishness and pride. People who fail to see sin in their own hearts fail to realize that this is often the key for their lack of joy. They live in a perpetual state of self-centeredness, and it steals all your joy. So let's look at the motivation for spiritual unity as Paul presents to us in chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent in one purpose. Obviously, Paul's addressing this because this was not the case in the church at Philippi. <clears throat> so he begins by stating every true believer is in Christ. The moment we trust him for salvation, we are placed into his body. Therefore, all believers are united in him. We are one with Christ, and we are exhorted then to act with unity. We are a family regardless of our background, our education, our financial situation, and our unique personality. There is no place for division when we are one with Christ. In other words, if it is true, or since it is true, that we are in Christ, Paul's saying then we have encouragement in him. Christ comes alongside of us to help us with comfort, with counsel, with exhortation. The reality of this amazing truth is that every believer has the indwelling Holy Spirit who helps us obey. In light of this truth, we are compelled to preserve the unity of the body of Christ. He shed his blood for this body, the church. Not only that, since there is any encouragement of love, we have the incentive of God's love to remind us to love the way he loves. We've all experienced people in our lives that we find challenging and not easy to love. And we would prefer to just keep away from them. But Paul exhorts us to let God's love for you be your incentive to live in harmony, even with challenging people in your life. Since there is any fellowship of the Spirit, speaks of the truth that God's Spirit indwells every believer, and therefore we have a partnership together. Since there is affection and compassion, a work in our hearts produced by the Spirit, we have love for each other. These are the reasons for us to be unified as a believer in the body of Christ. We're united to Christ. God's reached out to us in love. And God's spirit produces a partnership with each of us. So we have affection and compassion in our hearts for others. 
since all these things are true, Paul's saying that you must have unity and you must have harmony. If you don't understand that all Christ did to bring about this, uh, purchase this body, his church, with his own blood, then you fail to see the importance of unity and to protect that unity. <clears throat> this church had been such a joy to Paul, but he's saying his joy was not complete because of this problem of their lack of unity. So Paul appeals to them to bring joy to his heart. Hebrews 13, 17 commands believers, obey your spiritual leaders who give an account for your souls. Let them do this with joy, not with grief. And when believers are not unified and there's grumbling and complaining and factions, it is a grief. And Paul's saying, make my joy complete. Be united. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Obviously, Paul isn't saying we all have to see everything the same way. But in the sense, in the spiritual realm, it does mean that together our minds are submitted to the authority of Scripture, and we are to think alike regarding the truth of God's Word. If, if one doesn't think they have to submit to the authority of Scripture, then the reality is that their own mind is their authority, which results in a whole lot of discord, because other people don't think like your mind, and then you think they just don't know what's right. Rather, we are to maintain the same love for each other. This is God's love, which is an act of our will. It's not how you feel. Uh, this means sacrificially giving of yourself to meet the needs of others. And you all know well 1 Corinthians 13's <coughs> description of what love looks like. Keeps no record of wrongs, always believes, hopes, kind, patient, and so on. So being a part of a church or a church ministry is never to be so that people will meet your needs. Our love is to be mutual and sacrificial. United in spirit has the idea that we are actually one souled. It is used only here in the New Testament. It means to live in selfless harmony, which means there just isn't any place for selfishness, which breeds um, discontentment, envy, resentment, and so on. Those are the sins that destroy unity. <clears throat> Believers are to be intent in one purpose. We are to think the same, having hearts knit together, because what we all want to do is give glory to God in the way we live and act and speak. So what is God's method for his church to be unified? It's clearly presented in 3 and 4 of this chapter. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not really look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So here is the key to spiritual unity. There is no place in our hearts for selfishness. It is a totally destructive and consuming sin. It can start very small and be unnoticed in a person's heart, but it grows and grows to produce resentment, as I said, jealousy, anger, impatience. It's the same expression used by Paul in chapter 1, verse 17, when he talked about those proclaiming Christ, you know, just to stick it to him and spite him. It's because of selfish ambition. Insecure people wanting to promote themselves. It is clearly seen in churches when people only think about themselves or their particular ministry, like, that's nice, you do what you do, but I do this, and there better be money for this ministry, because that's what I do. Yes, what others are doing is good, but the priority is what I'm doing. And Paul uh, then adds the sin of empty conceit, 
which means a highly exaggerated self-view. Selfish ambition is about goals being met, and empty conceit is more about getting uh, glory for what you're doing. This type of person expects everyone to agree with them. It is the ugly sin of pride and arrogance in being wise in your own eyes. This is a very subtle and deceptive sin, and you all know we all do this about almost everything. <laughs> we have all been guilty to think uh, that you are anything or to think that you deserve a certain treatment by people is a self-deception. Galatians 6.3 says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The only way we can think right about ourselves and preserve the unity is by having humility of mind. This is the foundation for being godly in your character, in your actions, and in your attitude. It is a lowliness of mind about yourself. It is the opposite of pride. That pride is the very sin that has every one of us separated from God from birth on till we come to Jesus for forgiveness. It means believers are not to think too highly of themselves, but rather should regard one another as more important than themselves. This is to uh, be clearly recognized as a conclusion based on the truth of scripture that we just saw. Paul's not saying pretend others are more important than you. <clears throat> He's saying believe that they are more important than you. Believers are to excel in this mindset of seeing others as more important than self. I listened to a great message about this chapter in this verse and was reminded, you know, the only way we can do this is to reflect on our own wickedness, our own vile thoughts and selfishness and anger and all the stuff that nobody sees but God alone. After all, we know far more about our own sins and attitudes than we do of others. We can't read people's hearts or minds. And you know what? If you think you can, you are really self-deceived. You think you are omniscient like God. You don't know what people are going through. You don't know what they're thinking. You don't know why they do what they do. It's your pride. You think you know. You know what? Focus on the sins that you know you have. When you honestly see your own heart for what it is and how vile it is, then you are better able to regard other people as more important than yourself. Paul said he was the chief of sinners and the least of all saints. I mean, we look at Paul like a superhero apostle, you know, the most godly man. That's not how he saw himself. He saw himself as the least of sinners, the least of saints, rather, and the chief of sinners. So the moment you think yourself to be humble or to arrive at some spiritual uh, height, that reveals that you simply are not. Ladies, our hearts are so deceitful and desperately wicked. I encourage you, I plead with you to ask the Lord to show you your sinful pride. It comes about in every little avenue of your life. That your husband can't do anything right. That you know the best way to cook, clean, fold, drive, and do everything. Because you're better. You know better. It is your pride. That's all it is. It's your pride. So ask the Lord to show you, you know, without um, humility, there is just not going to be harmony, not in the church and not in your home. We're also commanded to not merely look out for our own personal interests, but also the interests of others. So when you ha are a humble person, then you are not consumed with only the things that matter to you in your world. This doesn't mean you have no interests, but it's just that you look out for the interests of others. 
Rather, we serve others by taking an interest in them um, and being interested in what's important to them. It means you have to stop talking about yourself and your situation and ask questions to learn about what's going on in the lives of others. Be aware of how others are ministering in your church. And you know what? Promote what they're doing. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We are blessed to have a perfect model to show us how to do this. And that takes us right into our model, the perfect model for unity. Verses 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, that is, laid aside his privileges, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The attitude Paul is talking about is the one every believer is to have in order to live like their Savior. It is what he has just said in the previous verses, as well as what he's about to say that Jesus illustrates in his incarnation. And what is the attitude we're to have in ourselves? First of all, selflessness. Paul takes us back to Jesus before he became a man. He existed in the very form of God because he is God. The word form means the outward display of an inward nature. Jesus is God. He possesses all of God's attributes. He's omniscient, he's omnipresent, omnipotent, he's creator, redeemer, the way, the truth, the life, the past, the present, the future. This is a claim to his deity. Jesus always has been and he always will exist in the form of God. Secondly, Jesus, being equal to God the Father, did not selfishly hold on to this position of prominence. He did not hold on to that outward manifestation of his deity as if it were a treasure he had to grasp. He did not selfishly insist that he hold on to his rights as God. This is the very one who spoke the worlds into existence. The one worshipped and praised by myriads of angels around the throne who did his, do his bidding. He's, um, around the throne. So in Jesus becoming a man, he never in any way diminished his absolute equality with God. In other words, he didn't cling to or hold on to all of his rights and privileges as God. And why would he do this? Why would he stoop this low? Because of his love for sinners like you and me. Jesus demonstrates to us what it means to have the mind of Christ. It means to be selfless, to think of others, to lay aside your personal rights to benefit other people. The mind of Jesus shows us that we are to lay aside our rights for the sake of others. If we insist on our way, in reality, we live as if others exist to serve us. But Jesus did not hesitate to set aside his rights for others, even people who could care about less about what he was doing for them. Jesus didn't have to leave the glories of heaven, <clears throat> but he did so for the sake of others. So what about you? Are there certain rights you believe that you have to have that you're holding on to? You know, you have a right to be treated a certain way, to have a certain amount of money, to have a certain amount of health, to have a certain amount of love given to you. 
Jesus then emptied himself. He refused to assert his divine rights on behalf of himself. He never emptied himself of his deity. He never ceased to be God. He temporarily had his glory hidden from humanity. Though he was one with the Father during his incarnation, he did nothing of his own initiative, but was in total submission to the Father. Hebrews says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. <clears throat> Jesus also chose not to exercise the full use of his attributes. I mean, we know he was omniscient. He knew where Nathaniel was sitting. He knew what he was thinking. And he told nature to stop the storm on the sea. I mean, those are demonstrations of his attributes. But he also limited those for a time. We know the verse where he said, no one knows that the hour of my return, not even myself. Uh, but that was only in his incarnation. <clears throat> Jesus became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is his mindset. He left all the glory and adoration and worship of heaven, which we can't even comprehend. He had always been face to face with God the Father, but when he became sin, Hanging on that cross, bearing the wrath of God for sinners like you and me, he was abandoned and forsaken completely by God the Father. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus never stopped being God when he emptied himself in all of these ways. When we as his children empty ourselves, refusing to cling to certain privileges as a child of God, we are following his example of humility. We have so little to lay aside compared to what he laid aside and condescended to come to us. Then Jesus taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He no longer existed in a manner equal with God, though he was still God. He became a man who was a bondservant. He stooped. He was a real servant. He didn't pretend to be a servant. He took upon himself the nature of a bondservant, became a slave. He had no possessions, no house, no clothes, no boat on the Sea of Galilee, no donkey of his own, had to borrow one to ride into Jerusalem, was buried in a borrowed tomb. Here is the king of kings, creator of everything, claiming nothing that he had created for his own sake. He came to do the Father's will, to serve the needs of people, to carry the burdens of others. The biggest burden is our burden of our sin. And he bore that burden when he hung on the cross for all who would trust him. How can we begin to comprehend how low he stooped as a servant? This is the mind of Christ, who serves others, gives up his rights to become a servant for people. Paul is driving home this point to the Philippians and to each of us. The mind of Christ doesn't insist on getting its own way. It serves others. Then being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The descent of Jesus continues to be shocking, really. We see a submission to God in serving others. Not only did he humble himself to be born as a real man, conceived by the Holy Spirit as a, a baby growing in a woman's womb, to be a helpless baby cared for by a teenage girl and her husband when he was born. Can you imagine the angels when, when all that transpired in heaven going, what? 
You know, where he's not here, he's in Mary, a human's womb. Incredible. He was submissive to the Father's will. And you see that, that's why he was up early in his tired, exhausted human body, seeking the Lord's direction for the day in his incarnation. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, being all-knowing, knowing what he's about to suffer, he, he, is there any other way? But the result, the end decision was, not my will, but thine be done. This is the real key for us to grasp in being selfless to serve others. We are doing it for Jesus' sake. This must be our focal point. The reason you stay married to a difficult, uh, loveless husband who offers you nothing in a relationship is because you're submitted to Jesus Christ and his word. And you do this because you love him. The only way you can serve people, even if they are ungrateful for all you do, and let's all face it, if you had children, that's what that's about for much of the time. <clears throat> but you do it to honor your God and your Savior. Your kindness, your submission, your self-sacrifice is out of love and submission for Jesus. It has to be the focal point that keeps you going on and doing the next day and the next day and the next day. He didn't just die. His death was the most shameful, disgraceful, torturous, humiliating death. Crucifixion was a cruel form of execution that the Romans really perfected. And it was used only for the lowest of low criminals. A citizen could never be crucified. You hung naked humiliated and tortured, sometimes for days. And the law of Moses declared anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God, and he was cursed by God. Jesus chose to obey the will of the Father. He laid down his life on his own initiative, and he was separated from the Father, forsaken by God, so we would never be forsaken. We could never copy the merit of his death, but we can follow the attitude that he shows us in his sacrifice. You know what? It does cost something to regard others more important than yourself. It may cost you your health. Look what it costs Jesus, everything. How unlike our Savior we are when we think we have certain rights to be, as I mentioned, happy, loved, wealthy, in good health, properly respected and spoken to, appreciated. Like Jesus, we're not to hold on to these things and have any tight grasp as if this is what I deserve. Rather, we are to be a servant the way he demonstrated to us. But you know what? One day everything will be different. To be, a great, to be great in God's kingdom is going to be measured by the terms of how you humbled yourself and served others in this life. And that's the exaltation of Jesus. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Like Jesus, we are to concern ourselves with being humble servants and let the Father be the one to the, the exalting. I remind you, God is opposed to the proud. He stiff arms the proud. You're a proud person, he's stiff arming you. But, Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you at the proper time. So God exalted Jesus because Jesus humbled himself. The Father honored Christ because of his 
submission, and humility. The Father has exalted Jesus to the highest place of honor and authority and rulership. Jesus stooped to wash the dirty feet of his disciples and then to die for wretched sinners like us. His aim was to do the will of the Father. He endured the cross because of the joy set before him. So why do we keep humbling ourselves? Not to earn heaven. Heaven is a free gift received by faith, but rather the reward and exaltation in our future when we reign with Christ is determined on our humble servanthood in this life. Jesus' name is exalted. He was given a name above every name. It's an exalted name, incomparable name. He's given the name Jesus. That was a common Hebrew name, Joshua. That was his name in his humiliation, in his incarnation. However, his new exalted name, given after he rose, ascended, and was seated at the right hand of the Father, is Lord. <clears throat> the supreme, sovereign God of the universe. A true servant like Jesus is now Lord. <clears throat> now, he didn't pursue titles, as many Christians try to do, to have other people be in awe and respect of them. Uh, he was humble and did the will of the Father, and God exalted him. If you want to be exalted, then follow Jesus' example. Be the lowest of the low servant. While Jesus was on earth, we know he was mocked, spit on, slapped, rid ridiculed, slandered, treated like garbage. But now he sits on the right hand of the majesty on high. And as the official Lord of the universe, he has this exalted position in which every intelligent being that has ever lived will acknowledge him as Lord and will be subject to him. They will bend their knee and openly confess that Christ is Lord. In heaven, all the angels do this. All believers who have gone to be with him do this. People living on the earth at the time of his return will bow the knee. Those under the earth, referring to those in the demonic world, the fallen angels, and those who have gone to passed into death without a relationship with Jesus and separated by God in a place for, called hell, they will all one day bend the knee. The question is, have you submitted willingly to his lordship in your life now? You don't want to be one who is forced to do so unwillingly at a future judgment. Paul points, <clears throat> Paul's point in all of this was that Jesus did not concern himself with being exalted. Rather, he concerned himself with humility and submission of the Father. It is the Father who did the exalting then. So we are to be like our Savior, living as a believer, is a life of lowly service for others. That is how we will keep unity and harmony in the church, in the ministry that we do, and in our homes. So be encouraged that when no one sees what you do, when no one offers a word of gratitude or thanks or appreciates anything that you do, that you keep on serving and you suffer and you sacrifice, your Father in heaven knows, and he will exalt you one day. Then Paul goes on, based on all of this, to make an appeal to us to, we need to be obedient. In the next verses, 12 and 13, So then, my beloved brethren, just as you've always obeyed, not only my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the key. He wants us to obey what we've just been st studying 
this church was so special and close to Paul and beloved to Paul. And he wants their obedience to be motivated by their desire to please the Lord, not him. You know, as parents, you really hope your kids will actually do what you told them to do or not do when you're not around. And Paul's like, I, I want you to do what's right whether I'm with you or not. Do it for the Lord. And work out your salvation has nothing to do with getting salvation. These people were already saved. That would be contrary to everything scripture proclaims. Rather, the word Paul used here to work out means to bring something to completion, to work to full completion. It has the thought that a believer's behavior is to put, be put into practice daily. Make an effort to live a holy and obedient life. This requires human effort and discipline. The expression that is often an excuse for a lot of people is, oh, I'll pray about it, but then they do nothing. Well, we should pray about everything, but in the meantime, be aggressive and disciplined to obey what we know we're supposed to do. We are to have a holy fear of God, and we understand our own weaknesses and his holiness, and we are to work out what the Lord has put in us to do. We have to put to death our flesh and die to our sin, our covetousness, our self-centeredness. It's a continual war and battle. Verse 12 kind of presents our responsibility to work, whereas verse 13 presents it is the Lord who begins that work, produces a desire to be obedient, and we aren't left alone to suck it up and try to obey. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit to help us. But it is our responsibility to aggressively obey. <clears throat> a lazy Christian is a disobedient Christian. You have no discipline to be in the Word and in prayer, but you, have, you make time for what's important to you. That's just a fact. So we are to make every effort to obey God and, be, uh, and trust Him to give us the power to obey Him. This is how we work out our salvation. And the final note, painful as it is, is do all things without grumbling or complaining. Okay, let's add that on top of everything else we've seen. It's a high standard. <clears throat> Paul's uh, talking about there needs to be a contentment and unity in the church, not this grumbling or complaining. This is talking about the person who grumbles and complains and mutters under their breath. It's, you know, the music's not right, the AC's not right, the service is too long. I mean, blah, 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 blah. It just goes on and on. And we're told, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Uh, we are to, this is how you work out your salvation in being obedient. People want their own way, and they don't get it, and then they complain and argue, and factions get started, and believers fail, begin to see themselves as more important than others. That's the whole bottom line. Obedience is critical, because Christians are to be blameless and innocent. Why? So we shine as lights in a dark world. This is a world of complaining people that we live in. I mean, that's the one thing you're easy to strike up a conversation with, with a total stranger. Isn't it awful? Isn't this just ridiculous and we can talk freely about that because we all have that very easy to go to the complaint mode but we are to be like our savior and have an attitude of humility and not complain so ladies what characterizes you me neither what would the people who live with you if or know you well say characterizes you is it your servanthood is it your humility or is it your grumbling and complaining i plead with you to get along with the Lord today and ask him to put the finger on places we need to do. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this 
amazing chapter. Thank you for your condescension and humility that you came to die on the cross for sinners like us. Lord, I pray that we would seriously take to heart these verses, commit them to memory, and then put them into practice, Lord, and be an example of servanthood to all who know us. In Jesus' name. Thank you.